Our Heavenly Father, we, we pray now as we consider your word that you might grant us a spirit of, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your Son, that our hearts may be enlightened, that we may know the hope to which we are called. Pray that you'd help me to preach faithfully, and we pray that you'd help us all to respond rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, mind reading is a secret power that I have long wished to possess. Uh, as most of you know, my, uh, my wife, Suman, is a Malaysian. And uh, so in our early days of dating, we had some pretty serious communication gaps. Uh, I remember one occasion in particular, we went out uh, for lunch with friends. And uh, after we'd been talking for quite some time, I was ready to go home. But as I looked at my wife, Suman, she was there happily chatting away with her friends and I thought, oh, okay, I'll just, I'll just hold on a bit longer. And when we finally left the lunch about another hour and a half later, it was an interesting conversation. There was no more smiles from my wife. There was exhaustion and there was frustration, maybe a little bit of anger. It turns out that Suman had wanted to go home the whole time and she was chatting away and she looked at me thinking that I wanted to be there a bit longer as well. Mind reading would have done our relationship a lot of good. Now thankfully we've, uh, since then we've learnt the importance of clear communication in marriage. But I wonder if uh, sometimes you wish that you could read the mind of God. You could, you could perceive his thoughts. You could... You, you, could, you can know what is his plans for the world, what is his will for your life, that, that, that somehow, no, no matter what is, is happening at the moment, that you, you, you can't make sense of, that, uh, well, you would see God's grand purpose in it all. If you could read the mind of God, what a, what a difference that would make to decision-making. What, what a difference that would make to the, to the plans and the priorities that we have in life. What a difference that would make when I, when I face times of suffering and I don't know why. If we could know the mind of God and so perceive the will of God, we could avoid all manner of confusions and live our lives in his plan. Well, as it turns out this morning, we don't need the superpower of mind reading to know the plan of God. Because the mystery of God's will, we're told, is something that's no longer hidden. It is revealed for us, uncovered for us right here in this passage for us all to know. We're now in chapter 3 of this uh, grand letter to the Ephesians. Uh, and we saw summarized in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the key theme of this book. This great letter is all about God's great plan, eternal plan, for the universe in the gospel. Look what Paul writes. God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's, God's grand plan for the universe is to unite all things under the rule of King Jesus. And so we've seen in chapter 1, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been predestined and adopted and redeemed and sealed with his spirit. All these blessings originally promised to the Jews, but now available to us all in Christ. And in chapter 2, we've 
We've seen how God has saved us by His grace. He's made us alive with Christ. Uh, so that not only we are reconciled to God, but we are reconciled to one another as well. We saw in chapter 2 that through Jesus' death on the cross, he has created one new man in place of the two, making peace. No longer hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Now at the cross, through faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God, and so we are united to one another. We are fellow citizens, members of God's household together, no longer fractured and divided, but one united body, the church. And so God's great plan for the universe is to unite all things under the rule of King Jesus. Now, Paul intends to respond to these great truths in prayer. He begins in chapter 3, verse 1 of our passage. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, dash, doesn't finish the sentence. Uh, He's only going to resume it in in verse 14. If you, you see down in verse 14, he begins again. For this reason, I bow my knees. And he continues on with his prayer. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he picks up this thought. He's a prisoner for the Lord. And off he goes. So it's as if as Paul uh, pens verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Maybe he got interrupted to go for a toilet break and come back. I don't think so. I think he, he wants to make sure that we don't miss the significance of that short, pra- that short phrase, of Paul's place in the grand plan of God. Now, as you see on the screen, Paul's writing this letter from prison. Most likely he's in Rome at about 60 AD. He's a prisoner of Rome, but that's not how he describes himself in that verse, is it? He says he's a prisoner for Christ. And he says he's a prisoner for you. Uh, Paul is in prison because he's a servant of Jesus. Paul is in prison because he has been called to preach the gospel to the nations. And this is a ministry that Paul thinks is of profound importance for us to get our minds around this morning. It is through Paul that God has revealed the mystery of his will. Point one this morning, the mystery of the gospel. He continues, verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. So here Paul speaks of the mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed. Now now to call it a mystery here, it doesn't mean that it, it cannot be known. Right? A mystery is, is something that is, is true, it's an, but it's an unseen reality. And so, as an example, what's in my pocket right now is a mystery. Now, you might have many guesses as to what's in my pocket right now. Maybe my wallet, uh, my handphone, perhaps a blue card to write some comments on later. Well, it's a mystery, isn't it? It's known only to me, but I can reveal the mystery to you. As I tell you that it's a a box of rectangular pieces of card, 
Some of them have hearts on them. Some of them have spades. Some of them have clubs. Can anyone guess what it is? Oh, it's a pack of cards, right? The mystery is now revealed. Aren't you glad that you know it? <laughs> and, and, and so with the mystery of the gospel. To call it a mystery doesn't mean that it cannot be known. It doesn't mean that you have to try and guess and guess and guess until you work out what it is. It means that for a time previously it wasn't known, but now it is. Now it has been revealed. It says, verse 4, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, notice at the heart of this mystery is Jesus Christ. It is the mystery of Christ. Because as we've seen already, God's grand plan is to bring everything under the rule of Jesus. Jesus is at the centre of God's plan. And Paul is saying then that, that this is a mystery that you will not perceive simply by reading the Old Testament alone. Without God's revelation through his apostles and through his prophets, and I think that means his New Testament prophets because it says it's now being revealed to the apostles and prophets. Well, without these apostles and prophets, it's not possible to, to see with clarity God's plan to bring Jews and Gentiles together under Christ. Now, of course, that, that doesn't mean, though, that the plan is absent from the Old Testament. And, and having been illuminated in our, in our minds through, through, the, through the teaching of Paul and the other apostles, we, of course, we can look back to the Old Testament and we can, we, we can see the, the plan unfolding, being foreshadowed and all the promises that are pointing forward to Jesus. We can, we can now look back and it, and it all makes sense. Perhaps we think of Genesis 12, God's promises to Abraham. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And when we think of the servant in Isaiah, I'll make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Perhaps we, we think, oh yes, that plan was glimpsed with, with people like Rahab and, and, and Ruth and, and Naaman the Syrian and others. Gentiles who, who came to be a part of God's people. But before the coming of Christ... It was only the Jews that were God's people. And, and the nations, the Gentiles, they could only enter God's people by, by becoming a Jew. And most of them did not. See what Paul is saying? Reading the Old Testament alone, without the New Testament, you'll, you'll never put all the pieces together. You, you, you'll never perceive that God's plan all along was this, this great multiracial people united under, the, under Christ have been reconciled by his death on the cross. You won't do it. But now, it's been revealed. It's plain. It's clear. In fact, it's, it's stated in verse 6. What's the mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers uh, members of this, uh, fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is a glorious plan, isn't it? No matter who we are, no matter what our racial background is, our gender, our age, 
our, our, our social status or, or whatever other market the world would use to divide us and fracture us from one another. In Christ, through his cross, we can all be united, fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, fellow partakers in the promises of Christ, united in Jesus, one in Christ. This is the mystery of the gospel. It's as if we can, we, we can peer into the, the very mind of God and, and see the eternal plan that he's been working out all along from the very beginning. And we can see at the center of that plan is that God is, is, is building a people for himself from every tribe and every nation and every language, every people, Jew and Gentile, Indian and Chinese, Malay and Iban, Korean and Japanese, South African and French, and yes, even Australians and British people. What a miracle that is. But there's the glorious plan. There's the mystery of the gospel, once hidden, now revealed for us all to see. We all belong to Christ together. Or is it clear? Do you perceive it? Is it still hidden to you? Uh, this week I was reading this, this book with one of our congregation members, Gospel-Centered Church. I'd highly recommend it to you. And I was struck by the title of the first chapter of this book. Uh, what would your first chapter be if you were writing a book on Gospel-Centered Church? You're laying out, you're outlining, you're defining mark of the gospel-centered church. What would you put as your first chapter? Let me tell you what the first chapter was. The mission of the church. Making disciples among all the nations as we verbally proclaim the gospel. Mission, he says, is the heartbeat of the gospel-centered church. They probably didn't think of that. But of course, that's, that's got to be true, isn't it? Because that's what the word gospel means. The word gospel is, means good news. The, the gospel, by its very nature, is a message that is to be proclaimed. That's why Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. The, the mystery of God's will is to unite all people, Jews and Gentiles, under the rule of King Jesus. So, of course... Mission has to be the key mark of the gospel-centered church. So I ask, as people look on our church, would they perceive this mystery revealed in our church? Or is it hidden? Well, let me uh, confess something I've observed in my own life. I think as a, as a pastor, I'm becoming increasingly adept at organizing events where people can hear the gospel. And yet I find my heart is becoming increasingly uh, callous, perhaps, to inviting people to those events. I've been praying that God will change my heart. So we say, oh, Christianity Explored's coming up, but I'm not thinking to myself, who am I going to invite? But if God's global plan, if his eternal will is to bring people of all, all nations together under the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then surely that has to be the goal of my life. That's what God's plan is. Surely it has to be my plan as well. Mission should be the defining mark of my life. Speaking the gospel in the workplace and the family. Praying that God will open people's hearts. And being willing to make sacrifices for the gospel. Mission is the heartbeat of God. If it's his eternal plan, surely it should be mine. wonder if you need to pray for your heart. Well, secondly, we come to the minister of the gospel. And verse 7 to 9, you notice that the focus shifts from the message itself to the, to the messenger. In verse 7, Paul describes himself as a minister of the gospel. And that simply means that he is a servant of the gospel. That's what a minister is, a servant. But Paul is, is totally aware that this this ministry of, of this service of proclaiming Jesus is entirely a gift of the grace of God. Throughout the passage, look at verse 2 on the screen. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. And verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so Paul, along with the other apostles and prophets, had this foundational role in the early church. Paul himself was the apostle to the nations. He was appointed by Jesus himself to preach Jesus to the ends of the earth. What an important role. But Paul notes he never deserved it. Verse 8, he calls himself the very least of all the saints. Because Paul remembers his past. Uh, he describes it for us in 1 Timothy. So I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He's judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul, before he was a Christian, he was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He was going around from house to house seeking to arrest Christians and lock them up. He was there personally overseeing the death of Stephen. And yet he received grace. Not only was he saved by Jesus, he was appointed in his service. And throughout this letter, we've seen again that God achieves this grand plan of bringing everything under the rule of Jesus by his grace and power. His grace, he gives people what they don't deserve. His power, he takes people who are dead sinners, heading for judgment, and he makes them alive in Christ and transforms them from within that they might no longer walk in sin, but serve the king. Do you see the purpose of God's grace? Not just salvation, but ministry. He's given grace for the sake of the Gentiles. He is, he is saved to serve. 
And he wasn't granted this because he was the great Apostle Paul, but because God was kind. I wonder if that is how you think about your own ministry. Because we've all been saved, saved by God's grace if we put our faith in Jesus. But not only saved, but we, we've been appointed to his service. We've been given work, good works that he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. He's given us gifts that we might use them to build one another up in love. To, to, to proclaim Jesus in our lives is a gift of God. It's a privilege to lead Bible study. It's a gift to teach Sunday school. It's a blessing to care for the residents of Cheshire Hall. It's God's grace that you can speak of Jesus in your workplace or your home. At one of my previous churches, there was a, a wonderful man who was converted, who was a quadriplegic. He had a car accident, and after that he couldn't move either his arms or his legs. It's a great tragedy. But he came to know Christ. And not only was he aware of God's grace in saving him from his sins, he had a rather rough life before that, he knew the grace of ministry. Now, of course, there was very little he could do in a Sunday service, except reading the Bible, praying, and talking, well, really anything that involved talking, he was very good at that. And every time he served, it was to him the greatest of honours that he could do anything to serve and encourage God's people. It is a blessing to serve, isn't it? It's an undeserved gift of God. He doesn't need us to advance his gospel. And if our ministry is effective at all, as Paul's was, it's only because of God's grace. It's nothing to, to be proud about. We were dead in sin. And the God who made us alive is the God who has empowered us to serve him. Well, in particular here, we see that Paul calls it a gracious gift to do evangelism. That, that, that's his big job, isn't it? To proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, to be his mouthpiece to the world. Uh, notice here to Paul how, how evangelism is, a, is not a duty, it's a joy. It's a gift of God's grace. It says, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And not only is it is God's grace that has led Paul to, to be this minister of the gospel, it is God's power as well. We saw in chapters 1 and 2, God's great power in raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at the, in, in the heavenly places as the ruler over all. God's power in raising us from spiritual death to life, And now we see the power of God in the life of the Apostle Paul, once a persecutor of the church and now a proclaimer of the gospel. And so by God's, God's grace and God's power, God can transform any of us to be his servants. Uh, I was listening to an interview earlier this week to a lady who was, in her past, was a vehement advocate of the gay lobby. Uh, she was a university professor specializing in feminism and Marxism. And she spent nearly a decade sharing her 
uh, her house with her same-sex partner. But by the grace of God and the power of God, she was converted. She was saved from her sins. She was made alive in Christ. But not only that, she was saved to serve. She, she became a, a, has become a powerful testimony to Christ in the United States, particularly to LGBT communities. She's brought many to Christ. But here is the grace of God, the power of God. We are transformed. We are, we are saved and transformed that we might serve him and that we might speak of him. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. See what his ministry is about. Speaking about the unsearchable riches of Christ. See, at the heart of Christianity is not the church, not a, not a set of doctrines, but a person full of grace and truth, full of compassion and love. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And words will never be enough to express the unsearchable riches of Christ. He is more wonderful than we will ever be able to describe. What he has done for us is more marvelous than we can capture in words. Of course, we must try. See in the prayer next week, we are we're to pray that we might know the love of God that is beyond knowledge. We must try. And verse 9, Paul wants to speak these unsearchable riches to everyone. God is the creator of all. We are all made in his image. Jesus dies on the cross for all that he might reconcile all of us to God and to one another. And so we proclaim the gospel to all, everyone. There is no one beyond God's ability to save and transform by the gospel. Now, of course, while there are many similarities between Paul and us, there are many differences too. And we must not miss the special emphasis here on Paul. God's grace was given to Paul particularly for us. See, the fact that any of us here today are, are here today owes to the ministry of the Apostle Paul by the grace of God. He is our Apostle. He was the apostle to the nations. He was the one through whom God revealed his eternal plan to unite all nations under his rule. Some people speak very badly of the apostle Paul, don't they? Don't ever let them do it. He is our apostle. Minister of the gospel. Well, thirdly, the manifold wisdom of the gospel, and in these final verses, we see the amazing role that the church has in making known the wisdom of God to this universe. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, imagine if we understand those words that they're quite shocking to our ears. 
I mean, just, just imagine that you, you were able to glimpse the very mind of God. You, you read his mind. You, you, you see what is his eternal plan for all of the universe. And what is there at the center of that plan? Smack one service. 10.30 in the morning. Church. I mean, would we really believe that the, the, the focus of, of God's eternal plan for the universe is... This little gathering here this morning, and the one down the road, and the one, up the, the one on the other suburb as well. My guess is that most of the time when we turn up to church, it's, it feels rather ordinary. Uh, perhaps even unimportant. If I miss a week, it doesn't really matter. And if, we, if we've begun to think in that way, we have, we have failed by a long shot to understand the significance of the church, of our gathering together as the people of God. For as we, as we gather, as, as this, this diverse bunch that we are from many, many backgrounds, we proclaim the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly beings. I, I, I doubt that most of us would be friends with one another if we weren't Christians, isn't it? Maybe some of us would be. But there would be certain people here, who, I would never be their friend if I wasn't a Christian. And yet here we are. This great mishmash of people from every tribe and nation. We're all here together as one. We love one another and we delight to be together. What a miracle that is. What is more, we're told that as we gather like this, we are proclaiming to the heavenly beings in the universe the manifold wisdom of God. Who are these, 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 these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? We, we learn more about them in chapter 6. You can see on the screen. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. They're not human powers. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the book of Ephesians says there's a battle raging in this universe. Satan and his angels are in rebellion against God. They are intent on fracturing our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Satan and his, and his angels are intent on condemning us to eternal judgment because of our sin. But here they are, looking on on our gathering this morning. And they see in this group of people meeting right here the wisdom and the power of God. Here we are, we're united in our faith in Jesus. We're loving one another. What a miracle that is. We proclaim the defeat of Satan and his schemes. We anticipate a glorious future when every tribe and nation and language will gather around the throne. We must never diminish our view of church. Our very presence together proclaims God's glory, not just to the earth, but to the heaven itself. Don't be absent from church next week, will you? Here is God's eternal purpose, verse 11, which he has realized in Christ Jesus. Jesus died, he was raised, he ascended to heaven that he might bring us together in one family in a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so we can now come to him in prayer. Verse 12, he says, In Christ we now have 
boldness and access, with confidence through our faith in him. Together now we can come. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can pray to God anytime, anywhere. We know that we're his beloved children. We know that our lives are always in his plan, no matter what happens. We can come to him in prayer in the most difficult of situations. We know that he hears us. We know that he answers according to his will. And we know that even as we, as we pray, God is, is realizing his glorious plan among us. As we live in peace with him and with one another, no longer fractured and divided, but living in love. Then we'll learn next, more next week how we, should, how we should pray like that. But verse 13 gives us our key application for this morning. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul was suffering for his preaching of the gospel. He was locked up in Rome in a, in a prison cell. He's worried that it's going to shake their faith when they, when they know what's happened. He says, I don't want you to be faint-hearted. I don't want you to be fearful. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be ashamed or, or embarrassed and start thinking that maybe this isn't really God's plan if his great messenger to the nations is now locked up in a jail cell. So Paul reminds them his imprisonment is for them. He's proclaiming the gospel so that the nations will hear it. And and that is their glory for his willingness to suffer in this way for for us shows just how valuable we are to God. Otherwise, he wouldn't bother. So don't lose heart. Press on. Now, this week in uh, Sydney, the archbishop there dressed those in the, in the Australian church who have uh, started blessing same-sex marriage. It's very sad. This is what he said at that synod gathering. My own view is that if people wish to change the doctrine of our church, they should start a new church or join a church more aligned to their views, but do not ruin the Anglican church by abandoning the plain teaching of Scripture. Please leave us. We have far too much work to do in Australia, evangelizing Australia to be distracted by the constant pressure to change our doctrine in order to satisfy the lusts and pleasures of the world. It was and is a tremendous stand, a courageous stand for the truth of the gospel. And can you imagine the slander that he received from the media afterwards and even from some of the church? But he was a great man like Paul willing to embrace suffering to see the true gospel preserved and proclaimed. And so when we see people suffering for their faith, whether it's you know, Archbishop Glenn Davies or it's Pastor Raymond Cole or whoever, whoever it may be, we should not lose heart. Just, just because the gospel is opposed by the world doesn't mean that it's not true. The gospel is God's eternal plan. It really is. As, as, as small, as our, insignificant as our gatherings must seem, they really are shining forth. The, the manifold wisdom of God is not going to allow it to fail. And when we suffer in this life, 
whether it's from persecution or whether it's from sickness or whether it's from bereavement, whatever it is, we need never doubt the sovereignty of God. Because we can see right here, even through suffering, God can achieve his eternal purpose. He did it at the cross. He was doing it in Paul's life. He can do it in ours. Come to him in prayer with boldness and confidence. And finally, if it is God's plan, his eternal plan to bring all the nations under the rule of Jesus, then surely the focus of our life, like Paul's, must be the preaching of the gospel. Uh, so often we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? And usually when we say that, we're thinking, should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I move here to Australia or stay here in Malaysia? You should stay here in Malaysia, by the way. <laughs> and generally when we ask that question, we're actually focused on earthly things with earthly priorities. But we don't need to, to, to mind read God's to know God's, uh, God's will for our life. It's, it's written in black and white for us right here. This is God's will for your life. It's revealed by Paul. God's will for your life is that united with brothers and sisters in Christ, you will live under the rule of Jesus and give your life to proclaiming that rule to everyone else. That's the will of God for your life. If you know that, then you will know which job to pick and who to marry and where to live. So are you willing to make sacrifices for gospel ministry? Whether that be the courage to speak up in the office, or to be baptised even though our parents don't approve of it, or to take up an early retirement to free up time to serve the gospel, whatever it is in your particular circumstance, will you make God's plan your plan. Rather than, than, than fitting God's plan around your plan, so you fill up your diary first, okay, I've got a bit of time here to go to Bible study. No. God's plan at the centre. And I fit my whole life around his plan. Paul here is totally captivated by the greatness of Jesus. Words cannot express the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's his identity. He's a servant of Christ. Christ and his gospel dominates his life and his thinking. And he is our apostle. And may the same be true to us. That the, the, the grace that saves us may also be the grace that transforms us to live lives for his glory. We don't need to, to mind read to know God's will for our life. We have it right here in God's word. We know God's plan for our life. The question is, will we live it out or not? Let's pray.
Dear Father, we want to thank you so much for the amazing grace that you have shown us through your Son. Thank you so much that he died on the cross for, for sinners like us who, who don't deserve it. Lord, we know that we don't deserve to be your servants, to be, to be used by you to bring the gospel to others. But we thank you that your grace not only saves us, but transforms us to serve you and serve your gospel. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to, to grasp your plan. We pray that your plan would be at the center of our lives. We pray that all of our decisions would be in line with your plan. We pray that we would be convinced that even in suffering that you can work out your plan in our life. And Lord, we pray that as we meet here Sunday by Sunday as your people, that we would indeed be united together as brothers and sisters, despite our diverse backgrounds, so that we might shine forth to this world and to the heavenly beings of your manifold wisdom and goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.